Hello, and welcome to the All Things Narrative Podcast, where we explore the relationships between the stories we love and the stories we live. I'm your host, Derek Hatch, and let's get started. All right, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us uh, back at the top of the month for the story of where we dive into the story of someone's life. I'm so glad that you are here for this episode. And I just want to go ahead and take a moment to remind you that at allthingsnarrative.com, we have lots of wonderful things going on, including our first workshop that at the time of this, there are slots left for it. And so if you are in the South Florida area and are interested in participating in a six-week workshop of how to live a meaningful story, then go ahead and go to allthingsnarrative.com and sign up for that. And the early bird special is that for six two-hour sessions, uh, only $100 if you prepay. So go ahead and check that out. And we hope to see you down here in South Florida for our first in-person workshop. And I'm really excited about that uh, with the good folks at uh, 1201, which is a wonderful nonprofit cafe and bake shop and coffee shop, best cappuccino I've ever had in my life, does pumpkin spice year-round the way it should be. So we are going to dive into another story Don't forget, um, if you want to find out how to share a little piece of your story on this podcast, uh, stay till the end of the episode, and uh, I'll tell you about uh, the collective document we're creating on this podcast. And so I am so excited for today because not only am I sitting down and interviewing someone who is just all around amazing and is a person that... um, I just straight up, like, when I think of, like, myself in 20 years, I'm like, if I can do half the things this person has done in the next 20 years of my life, I'd be pretty stoked. But for right now, we are going to, uh, we're going to introduce our guest. So here we go. Our guest today is Kristen Petamonti. Kristen's narrative journey is layered and includes decades of projects on five continents through listening, storytelling, creative writing, interviewing locals about their own initiatives to address challenges in their communities and sharing those stories on various platforms. She's been called a rebel with a cause, which I really like that. Kristen believes that context is imperative and specializes in unpacking and exploring complex layered topics so we can better understand, communicate, and connect with each other. She recently completed a master's degree in narrative therapy and community work as part of my cohort. As a narrative practitioner, Kristen especially enjoys piecing together preferred stories, often through her innovation project, melding the metaphors and physical practice of the Japanese art of kintsugi with narrative practices to deconstruct ideas around forever broken or damaged beyond repair. For 20 years, Kristen has also been a professional storyteller and is a recipient of the National Storytelling Network's International Story Bridge Award for her work connecting across cultures. She has presented and performed on five continents in 20 countries, her favorite being Iran. And in 2015, after a seven-year intention, Kristen infiltrated the World Bank where she is a storytelling consultant. She assists staff to tell the human stories within their data and more deeply honor the people they serve. Kristen has also published 
the as the author of three books, including A Bridge of Stories, which chronicles her decolonizing volunteer literacy project in Belize. Kristen is hoping one day to embark on another cross-country tour, taking her Kintsugi narrative program across the U.S. and Canada, piecing together preferred stories. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for my guest today and my colleague, cohort, friend, and all-around wonderful person, Kristen. Thank you so much, Derek, for inviting me to be part of your show. I'm delighted to be here. And as I often say, Derek is better than a cup of coffee. If you, if you <laughs> felt like you hadn't had energy before, I hope that you feel that way now. I oh. know I do. It's like a ray of sunshine. So. Oh, man, you're too kind. What I'm really happy about and excited about with this conversation is that our very first episode of this podcast was with Jill Friedman. And Jill was the leader of our cohort. And she's uh, just an all-around amazing person. If you haven't heard that interview, you've got to check it out. And she really erred on the side of talking about narrative therapy. And then uh, my guest uh, in the previous month is Kyle Arrington, who's a Hollywood screenwriter uh, who did shows such as The Originals, House MD, Conan, different things. And so he's all about narratives in, you know, fiction and uh, film and TV and stuff like that. And so with all things narrative, I feel like those kind of represent the different sides of narrative that we want to embrace and connect together. And I feel like, Kristen, in your life, you've been the person that does that, that you are someone who embraces all things narrative uh, whether it comes to uh, you being a storyteller or narrative practices. So what I would love to do is really just kind of talk about your story and how your passion for storytelling and narrative practices, how that kind of developed um, just from the story that you were living in your life. Wow. That's, yeah, that is a um, kind of a, a big question and, and a, and a meandering journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we could start, we could start as early as we want. You know, um, I just, I re I had to do a refresher this morning and, uh, this wasn't said in Kristen's bio, but Kristen's also done a Ted talk. She's a Ted speaker y'all. So, um, your Ted talk on being a superhero. What I forget the name of what was release it? your inner superhero. Yeah. Superhero. And it was about the fact that you don't have to have super strength or be able to um, fly that it's this idea of what kinds of traits might you have or what 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 kinds of gifts might you have to give to the world and when i say that mm -hmm. i mean things like being kind to people yeah befriending people that maybe other people are excluding so that yeah. idea of inclusion what was so, that like yeah so that came from a couch surfer and you know, his name is escaping me. He's from India. We met in New York city Okay. and he sent me a message and said, Hey, there's this Ted talks is doing this worldwide talent search mm -hmm. in 14 different cities around the world. And New York city is one of them. Mm -hmm. And I think you should send, you should send a video in about your work. Mm -hmm. So I, I sent in a serious one about my Belize project, how I sold my house and all my stuff and how I went and I listened and that this project grew out of, you know, wanting to, um, I didn't know the word decolonize at that point, but it was like wanting to give back these stories that were banned, blah, yeah. blah, blah. 
And then, and then I sent in another fun one. And, and ironically, ironically, this person in their message said, don't send in that silly free hug stuff. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. And I, and I thought I am going to send in the bubbles on the subway and the free hug the stuff. Bubbles. Yeah. Bubbles on the subway. So I used to blow bubbles on the subway to interact with people because on the subway, it was like, Nobody talked to anybody. And that was the one that was chosen. <laughs> so, and they said, and then when, when the Ted folks wrote back to me, they said, we'd never, ever had one like that before. We'd never had anybody talk about free hugs that, what is that? You yeah. know, or, and I didn't start free hugs. I need to make that very clear. A gentleman in Australia did named Juan man. Mm-hmm. And, but anyway, I, I, that led to doing a five minute talk in New York City as part of this talent search. Mm-hmm. And what they did was the TED organization, they uh, chose 20 to 30 speakers in 14 different cities throughout the world. Wow. And you got a five minute TED. And then through that, they chose, I think it was a total of 10 to then present on the main stage. I did not get that. Mm-hmm. which is fine. But that experience opened up doing an independent, a TEDx in Warsaw, Poland. Mm-hmm. They asked me, they said, wow. this free thing sounds, it's so different from our culture. Could you come to Warsaw? And then I ended up doing um, a storytelling tour in Warsaw. And wow. so I thought, okay, I'm going to Warsaw. So I contacted a storyteller that I met in Scotland and said, Hey, I'm going to be coming to Warsaw. Do you have anything going on? He said, Oh my gosh, the timing is perfect. I'm doing my festival you'll be part of the festival. And so I was part of the festival in Warsaw. And so your listeners, the takeaway is we don't know the interconnectedness that Mm. might arise from one thing we do. So allowing, allowing your mind to be open. And, and as I mentioned, or maybe you'll hear it later (laughs) Mm. is, is the idea of, of saying, of saying yes to different opportunities. Uh, And I need to remind myself of that. And Derek knows this, you know, there are times I want to also be transparent that I do talk myself out of things sometimes. And I need to remind myself of the beauty that can happen when we trust ourselves and we remind ourselves of, or maybe we witness someone else who they've trusted themselves and then had this beautiful opportunity in putting their work out there in a different yeah. way or in doing a part of their dream. Yeah. So that's something else I would love for you to carry with you. So one of the things that you mentioned in that TEDx talk was uh, about carrying bubbles that you're always packing, um, which yes. I love that. And it would be traffic and you'd be blowing bubbles in traffic and, yeah. and you know, just the joy that that brings. But there's one story that I've been dying to always ask you about. How did blowing bubbles stop a fight? <laughs> okay. Well, I was on the New York City subway and it was rush hour. So the car was pretty packed with people. Mm-hmm. And these, there was a pretty huge, and when I say huge, like a really muscular guy, like six foot three standing by the door. Yeah. And another guy just as huge got onto the subway and bumped into the other guy mm-hmm. and their hands immediately went into fist and they started shoving each other back and forth mm-hmm. and nobody did anything about it. And, and, but there was whispering, like, should we do something? Should we do something? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I 
I had bubbles with me because like <laughs> all was packing and mm-hmm. I reached into my bag and I stood up and I took a step closer to them and I smiled and I, I just dipped the bubble wand and I blew bubbles. And within like four seconds flat, these two huge guys were popping the bubbles. So I blew more bubbles and then I reached into my bag and I always had some to share because I would hand them out on the subway just mm-hmm. to create conversation and connect with people. And by the way, these work all over the world. I've done this all over the world. Wow. And and I handed each guy a thing of bubbles. And then these guys opened the bubbles and they're laughing and they're blowing bubbles. Wow. It was an amazing experience. Now, I also admit that could have gone a very different way. I got sure. very lucky that it went the way That's it went. Pac- pacifism at its finest, though. Nonviolent yeah, yeah. solutions. Yeah. And oh, in Iran, nice. in Iran, I was in Iran for a storytelling festival. And yeah. there was a crying toddler, a crying toddler in the airport. And I didn't have language word wise, but I had bubbles mm-hmm. and it was the last bottle I had in my bag. And I sat on the floor and I started blowing bubbles and her tantrum just diminished and diminished and diminished. And within about wow. a minute, and I looked over to her mother, like, is this okay? And her mother spoke English mm-hmm. and her mother was nodding her head and her child named Bahar, which means spring, her child crawled into my lap and just sat with me. And for about 15 minutes, we blew bubbles un- until they had to board their plane. It was, it that's was- just beautiful. Like I can imagine if I was a parent, you know, it might be strange at first to see a stranger do that. But at the same time, there's just something wonderful about that human connection. And I know with the free hugs, you know, you have stories that you've told as well about how just having a free hug sign people can open up to you and, oh yeah, and whatnot. A gateway. It was a gateway to much deeper conversation. And yeah. in, in around around 2012, I think I started taking my free hug sign to protests as well. Yeah. So prior to that, I would I would simply stand in a, a town square. I did this all over the world too. I've done free hugs in 29 different countries, I think, and cities all across the U.S. Wow. But but um anyway, the protest. I started taking it to protest out of curiosity what might happen. And I witnessed multiple times people on either side coming up and hugging me. Mm. And then several times people on either side ended up talking to and hugging each other. Wow. It was profound. I mean, it's profound what can happen with two seemingly simple words on a piece of cardboard. Unbelievable. Yeah. That's part of my ministry, I guess. If I had any ministry, it's there's a thread through oh, everything. That is ministry. Absolutely. Breaking stereo yeah, breaking stereotypes and connecting people together who might never imagine connecting yeah. with each other. That's beautiful. I, Thank I, you. I'm gonna have to sit on that for a long time. <laughs> why why narrative practices are are so dear to me is um growing up i was really really bullied in school Mm. and the the gift from that was this compulsion that started probably around sixth seventh grade Mm -hmm. of never wanting another kid to feel like i felt to feel um, not only excluded, but berated and 
ostracized. Yeah. And so it it became if I saw a kid who was sitting alone at the cafeteria, I would ask, I would always ask, would you like, would you like company? I would like, you know, would it be okay if I sit with you? And then yeah. that translated into as I got older, whenever I either saw someone who was being treated unkindly or with disrespect, it would be about calling, calling it out, but hopefully in a way the other person could hear it too, because sometimes people aren't even aware of their behavior off. A lot of times they're not and creating spaces of, of inclusion. And I think that's what, as I, as I sit and I think about it right now, I think that's part of what compelled some of the the later storytelling work too mm-hmm. in working with populations where there were all kinds of stereotypes yeah uh, so for example in in belize which is a lower income country mm-hmm. stereotypes about and i don't i don't believe this by the way so i need to make it very clear like i don't yeah. believe these stereotypes the stereotype of somehow less than or that they don't have the knowledge or they don't have X, Y, Z, where what I was noticing in going in and listening first was how much incredible wisdom people did have. And they had all kinds of ideas about how to solve problems in their communities. What often was lacking was funding for things that they wanted to do, but it certainly was not a lack of ideas. Um, and later I can talk about that, that project because that, I, that compulsion, I will say that, I don't know, there's got to be a better word than compulsion, that driver passion, maybe that's mm. a better way to say sure. it, that driver passion to, to walk alongside people and maybe be that bridge to connect either resources or looking at ideas they had. And instead of saying, oh, you know, that's a terrible idea saying, wow, that's really fascinating. That's really interesting. Tell me more about that idea. What, how could that work in your community? What might that look like? Uh Then trying to maybe find others, you know, bridges to uh, potential funding or, um, and that wasn't always the case. I think sometimes it was simply listening to someone's idea Mm-hmm. And affirming that idea and showing respect for the idea rather than dismissing it out of hand. So if we can go back for a moment, when you were describing you being in seventh grade and you started to notice that there were students that were alone, you know, inclusion was the word that you used and you wanted to go sit next to them. And, and I connect a lot with this as well in my, in my life, but walk us through this a little bit. Like when you see someone and you go up to them and you sit next to them, like, what did that look like? What was it? Did you say anything? How did you initiate that? What was some, maybe some of their responses? I would say what, what I remember of it is being really gentle in the approach Mm-hmm. And not assuming that they wanted company, you know, just saying, hi, I noticed you were sitting alone and I used to sit alone and it wasn't always my choice. And I'm wondering if you might want some company, would mm-hmm. it be okay if I sat and ate lunch with you today? Mm-hmm. And often the response was, you'd want to sit with me? I'm like, well, yeah, sure. I'd like to sit with you. Mm-hmm. 
And then sometimes what happened was in junior high, this didn't happen, but in high school, what sometimes happened was I was a theater kid then. Oh, that's good to know too. Yeah. Yeah. Theater, theater was theater saved my life. (laughs) Theater and storytelling saved my life. And in theater, it really was. And that, that happened by the way, in eighth grade. So seventh grade, for y'all out there who might be having a tough time, mm. seventh grade was still the worst year of my life. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> I'm 54 now and seventh that age 12. It, because there was one, there was one young lady. This is actually an important story because it talks about it really opens up that no assumptions piece. There was a, a, a classmate, her name was Andrea, and she would convince the entire class of like 30 kids to pull pranks on me every single Mm. week, every single week. And that happened the entire year of seventh grade. Mm. And it made my life um, a living H-E double toothpicks. You could say (laughs) it's okay. It was really awful. And anyway, later in high school, I confronted her one day Mm. and I asked her why why did she feel so compelled to be so cruel to me? What was going on in her life? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she allowed herself to be vulnerable and told me that her parents at that time were going through this really awful divorce mm. and parents were pitting her and her sister against each other and against each parent. And the only way that Andrea felt good about herself was to put other people down. And when she told me that, it really is, and I've I've carried that in my heart my whole entire life about she was mean because she was going through really hard stuff at home. Mm. And it really opened my eyes to thinking about how many other kids were going through really hard stuff at home. Yeah. And and I was too. I mean, Derek, you know part of my story from mm-hmm. grad school with your listeners my home life. And this also deeply influences my narrative work. And it's one of the reasons I got into narrative work. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting about what you just shared there is it sounds like in your high school experiences, there's both, uh, you really were conscious of those who were alone, those who had been bullied. You mentioned that that was something that was on your radar because you were bullied a lot and you didn't want anyone to, to experience that or feel that way. But you also had this awareness of the the person who's causing the bullying, the person who's doing these things and asking her why and then finding out her story. And it reminds me of, you know, we did an episode on here a bit ago about people not being their problems and people being multi-storied. Was that, is it fair to say that as early as middle school and high school, you were maybe starting to realize those things before you could even name what they were with narrative. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that goes even earlier. It goes even earlier. You just brought to mind when, from when I was five until I was 12, Mm -hmm. my best friend was was half black and half white. And I never knew that. Like, I didn't see that. I only learned that later when other people were like, do you realize? And it was like, no, this is Samantha. And she's my best friend. Like, Mm. I, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I bring it up because this this idea of them of multi-story 
I saw that really early on is people only seeing one facet of somebody and not realizing there were all these other things going on. And, and maybe that's also because of my lived experience of what was happening in my own home behind closed doors. Yeah. That, that influenced me saying, I wonder if my dad is living these different stories Mm. And I am more than one thing, then everybody else must be too. Yeah. And I think it was an awareness really early on. And maybe the maybe the bullying part of it somehow opened that more. Yeah. And because I was then talking to other kids too who were pushed aside, mm-hmm. often because I'm thinking of there was a family from India. So where where I lived in East Southeastern Pennsylvania was pretty homogenous for the most part. It was very white. In my school, I think we had one family that was had India Indian background. Mm-hmm. We had like three African American families. Mm-hmm. We had three or four Asian families. Mm-hmm. And and then it was mostly white folk. And and the kids who were different, like I remember Sangeeta and Sarita, they were just People just judge them from the outset, push them aside. And for me, it was more, I was curious about, I wanted to know. I remember sitting with them on the bus. Nobody would sit with them on the bus and I sat with them on the bus. And then I got to learn about Indian food and I got to learn about, you know, different traditions and what, you know, and different ways of being. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, it was, it was something that always intrigued me. And I wanted to, I wanted to understand rather than push away. And again, I didn't want people to feel like I had felt. Yeah. It sounds like the, some of the things you experienced in your home was affecting how you saw, um, people and it is openness, maybe a good word, you know, for it. Like, like you mentioned inclusion, openness, um, and that you began to see people and to be curious about people. Yeah, the openness, that's a great way to put it. And and I think it's because what I witnessed in my home was the opposite of that. Mm. And and I I think it may be helpful for some listeners to just openly share um that my my father was a, a Vietnam veteran. Yeah. And he was he was in Vietnam in 1963 mm-hmm. before things really kind of hit the fan before before you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of troops were there. And and my dad had been recruited at age 17 from his high school to be part of this Air Force Secret Security Service. They were called Silent Warriors. Okay. And he became what's called a cryptographer. Mm -hmm. He would get on the airplane. Um, He was immersed in Chinese language. And this is amazing to me. At age 17, my dad, within six months, was fluent in Chinese. Now, this wow. is a guy who grew up in semi-rural Pennsylvania. Right. You know, hadn't studied another language. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, are you kidding? Wow, my dad is brilliant. His his IQ was off the charts. I knew I knew none of this about my dad until mm-hmm. after his death, actually. He anyway, the the work that he did there was so highly classified. It was such incredible pressure. They couldn't talk to the people they served with. When he returned to the US. Um, and the Vietnam War was one where it's not a war where people were regarded with, who served were regarded with respect. There was a lot of hatred toward people who had served. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there was that layer. 
And then my dad couldn't share with anything, anything that he had witnessed and the pressure of that, he couldn't process or share or talk about it. So talk about closed. So for my dad, that turned into multiple attempts to take his own life because Mm. those pressures were just too huge. And then as a man at that time in the 60s, 70s, 80s, we didn't talk about things like suicide or, or Mm. depression at that time or anxiety. So he was living this secret and this closedness out of great fear and witnessing that in the household growing up with that. And I think it really instilled within me a desire to not be that Mm. a desire to somehow be more open. And I was also the kid that everybody told their stuff to. Yeah. I was the kid that I was the same kid. (laughs) That's why we're in narrative together. Right. I was the kid that people came out to before they told anybody else. I was the kid that people told of the abuse in their house or people told here. And that's been me my whole entire life. And I, and I think it's because that compassion witnessing what my dad went through mm-hmm. and then my dad died when I was 22 as well it changes you it it influences you and and that was a, a gift in growing up that way it was also really hard I mean it's devastating to watch your parent live a single story yeah of this damaged worthless he thought he was worthless and damaged and would never be of use and that's horrible. What a horrible way to live. And I wonder, I sometimes wonder, you know, the way things have changed now, you know, if my dad could teletransport through time yeah. <laughs> and, and see that now he could share about it and receive, receive assistance and be seen as a multiple multitude, multi-storied person, like you said, a few minutes ago, Yeah. maybe my dad would still be here. And that danger mm-hmm. of a single story that that's a that's a, a thread that runs through all of my work, whether yes. it's in Kenya or Ghana or Haiti or in the U.S. and with different populations, is for people to know that they are multi-storied, yeah. and that even and then that the traumatic things or the really challenging things they're living through, a diagnosis, whatever that super challenging thing might be, to know that even though yes, that certainly influences you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be your entire story. So walk me through, you know, how do you get from, you know, being in a rural area and, you know, you've got the family situation, you know, with your dad and, and lots of other things going on. You've got school, you know, you're in theater, but you're the person that people go to and talk to. How do we get from that space to you going to five continents and listening to different people? Because I'm assuming the stuff about context and knowing the context and multi-storied facetness, I guess, of people that propelled you into something. What I'm curious about is what did those steps look like to kind of start getting you into these places and where doors were opening for you to go on different continents and and what did that all look like? Such a great question, Derek. And it also, for people to know, it can sometimes take a long time to get to that part. 
then mm-hmm. that is okay. Right. If I trace it back and you had brought in theater, that was part of it. Okay. And in college, there was a certain kind of theater that I feel so incredibly grateful was was part of my experience. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was called Reader's Theater. Um, it doesn't I've really heard of that. Exist. It doesn't really exist anymore. So now they might call it oral interpretation okay. or they might call it, they might call it some forms of spoken word yeah. where what, and the professor, and I need to say her name, Roberta Christen. Oh, Roberta Christen. This woman uh, was such, is such a dynamo and Teresa, Teresa Patrick, who now goes by Teresa Arnett, these two professors with this reader's theater or oral interpretation it was a combination of of literature mm-hmm. of theater and of current events and one in particular forever made an impression on me and it was a tool fugard's satsi and it takes place in south africa during apartheid mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in that performance so this was in 1988-1989 when Apartheid, thank goodness, was starting to fall apart in South Africa through mm-hmm. the efforts of many, many people. And we were doing this performance. I had to portray a white supremacist. Oh, it was dear. the hardest role still that I have ever played in my entire life because it was the polar opposite yeah. of who I hope I'm being in the world. And and this work, so how does that connect to going to these other countries eventually? It planted a seed in my mind, uh, again, about breaking stereotypes, about the multiplicity of what's underneath, what's Mm -hmm. underneath the surface story that we're seeing, even the white supremacist, Mm -hmm. all of us, what's underneath that for that person? Fear, not, not knowing the stories of the people that, that she hated because she didn't know them she -hmm. was taught a certain way and again that idea of when we can get underneath that what else do we see Mm -hmm. and through theater through putting those different characters on those different lenses i think it can be a really beautiful gateway for people too to explore gosh i wonder what part of that character might mirror some of who I am that I don't want to look at. Wow. Or wow. what yeah, right? Like what what can I learn from that? And also sometimes there's another part of it is what part of that character would I like to be more like in the world? You know, maybe that's how I want to operate. Like this character is all this confidence. I don't feel confident. How is this character that way? So so theater really opened up doors. And when I, I said earlier it saved my life. Mrs. Carthy, when my high school, the high school I went to, she, um, she would actually drive me like 25 minutes out of her way home after rehearsal because I didn't, my, my parents couldn't come and get me. And that was after the late bus, whatever. The reason I bring that up is Mrs. Carthy went above and beyond, not only as the theater teacher, but as Mm -hmm. someone who saw she didn't know what was going on in the home, but she mm-hmm. knew something must be going on. And she saw that theater was helping me. Mm-hmm. So always made sure that I could be involved. Yeah. And that's such a gift that she gave to me and, and, and saw something in me 
that I didn't yet see yeah. and kept encouraging me in that, in that realm. And that's something I love about narrative practices that we trace. Where did this come from? Right. Where did mm-hmm. this skill come from? Where did this story totally, come from? Totally. These women in particular, Mrs. Carthew, Roberta Christen. And it's funny. I always call her Mrs. Carthew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although Roberta, Mrs. Christen told me she's finally, she's like, I'm Roberta Christen. I'm Roberta. Said, okay. And then Teresa Patrick, Teresa Arnett, they, they helped instill in me this idea of what else can you see in the story mm. and combining, you know, with real life events. And I think, I think that that bridge that made a bridge then to the storytelling world mm. In the storytelling world, I found, and that the tiny two sentence thing is by accident. I had no idea that storytelling could be a vocation that when I think of, when I thought of storytelling, I thought of, you know, the ancestors, Yeah. Many, you know, hundreds of years before. And I have some Irish ancestry. I'd, I'd imagine that didn't realize that could actually be your job in present day. Mm-hmm. And the storytelling world became another part of the larger narrative of these bridges between different cultures became really enamored with folk tales and you start diving into folk tales and then you realize for example cinderella there's something like 1800 versions of cinderella and almost every culture has that particular story yeah because it's universal and so that began connecting more dots you know and i'm pointing to my head like in my mind but also in my heart Mm. of all of these connections between different cultures and wanting to build these bridges because where I grew up, that influence of semi-rural Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. I grew up in an area that was pretty homogenous. It's much more diverse now, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. I also grew up in an area, unfortunately, that was quite closed off to anything that was different. Mm-hmm. And that never fit for me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to explore what was different and learn from it rather than I don't know, not, not that it was outright disrespect that I was witnessing. I think it was more fear and closedness rather than, oh, this might be fascinating. It was just this, you know, don't do that. It's different. Well, I'm all about do what's different. (laughs) As you're, as you're going through and you're entering into the storytelling world, is it the stories you're telling that you're bringing when you travel with you, is it people inviting you to share these stories? Is it you going into a place and saying, hey, you know, I'm going to listen and share? Like, how does that connection start when, when you go somewhere? Great question. And it's actually a combination of all of those things. Okay. So with that project in Belize, and I call it decolonized, that was upon invitation from a Belizean. Mm-hmm. who had never met a professional storyteller and who learned I had a passion for connecting kids with also with books and, and story that way, not only the oral tradition, but print. Now, was this, was this before the internet? No, the internet, the internet. So this was in 2005. Okay. But so is that, prior, how, is that how they found, fa- sorry, is that how they found you? No. Or? So that one, that one I went, so I, I went to Belize to celebrate in 2005, I left my full-time job. At that time, I was a children's li- librarian. Okay. And um, still in the world another, of story. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. However, another thread, this is super important yeah. for, for your listeners, for me anyway, is that story utilizing story can look so different in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. My job before I was a children's librarian was I did ovarian cancer research. Oh, wow. I was the lead interviewer on a study and it was interviewing women who had ovarian cancer and women who lived in the same communities who did not Yeah, because it's very hard to diagnose this form of cancer. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to figure out if the cancer patients had certain things in common in their medical history, in their reproductive history, certain things that might mask the symptoms like lactose intolerance. Okay. So anyway, in this 64 pages of questions, the most important question was, please tell me the story of how you were diagnosed. Mm. And in that one question of tell me the story of how you were diagnosed, they realized Many of these women had symptoms for years, sometimes decades, but were told, oh, it's all in your head or, Mm -hmm. oh, that's just change of life or they weren't listened to. Wow. That experience planted a seed and another seed in my, in my mind about the importance of listening. Again, context, right? Mm -hmm, Context mm -hmm. is everything. A checklist on a medical form only gets so much information, but tell me the story Or gosh, I'd love to know more about what's going on in your life right now that might be affecting you feeling depressed. And then you find out the person just lost a job or their partner just left, their dog just died. You find out all these things. Anyway, that was a seed that was planted. Yeah. Back to the back to the children's librarian job. That job, I did story time, storytelling, but it was, you know, reading books, right? At that time. But the theater background, it wasn't just reading books, it was telling the stories. Mm-hmm. This library was in a really small town that in five years time, three factories had closed. Mm. Drug addiction and alcoholism was off the charts because it was such an economically depressed area. Mm-hmm. People were, they'd lost their hope and, and I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's where the folktales also came in is I wanted to bring to these children who many of them had only traveled like 50 miles away from their homes to like go to grandma's house or auntie's house. They'd never been anywhere. And I wanted to bring the world to them. And a bridge to that was folktales. A bridge to that was, oh, this, you know, Cinderella, there's an Egyptian Cinderella. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. So that, that storytelling and that bridges, this all connects together, Derek, (laughs) that bridges to ending up in Belize and Belize ending up there was I left that full-time job to now be a full-time storyteller Mm -hmm. for four years. I'd been honing my storytelling craft and started getting gigs all over the place, all over Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware. And there were so many gigs at that time. This was between 2001 and 2005. I couldn't do both. And so I chose to spread my wings and leave the library job. Took me a whole year to make that decision. Cause yeah, it's a big decision. And I was single at the time. I was also celebrating. I was happily divorced. We're still really good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, I ended up Belize on holiday. And this person met me, never met a storyteller and said, hey, you told me about being a librarian, connecting these kids in a rural place with books. We need you here. Mm-hmm. The literacy rate had dropped like 40% in 15 years. It was a perfect storm that happened yeah. for that. And I traveled back and forth. My goal was... I wanted to do things differently than I'd heard about Peace Corps and Peace Corps does some really great things, mm-hmm. 
I'd also heard how sometimes they didn't listen enough. Mm. So I went in, I know I'm talking a lot today, but I do a lot of listening. The first six months I went back and forth to Belize. Most of it was listening. Mm -hmm. It was, hi, this is my skill set, but I don't know how to best be of service. What, what would, what would help you? What do you Mm -hmm. need? What, what's missing? What's, and it turned out that what was missing was creative writing from their curriculum. And they asked you know, could I teach creative writing? And the, the story part, when you said, was it stories that I took with me or stories that I learned there or Mm -hmm. stories that were given? This was all of those. I did research on books that featured children of color Mm -hmm. and the rainforest and the coral reef, because that's prevalent in Belize. Mm -hmm. And then it was listening about what stories do they tell? And I learned that they were forbidden to use their own indigenous legends in the schools there really it was banned Mm -hmm. it was banned for a variety Mm. of reasons and i thought that was wrong these are their cultural stories and so that some teachers would start teaching me the stories um, and I traveled to about 75 villages when I was there, always by invitation. Someone would invite me, I'm sitting on, you know, traveling on the little local school bus to go to a town and someone sitting on the bus would say, why are you here? Because nobody who looked like me would be in these areas. And why wasn't where the mm. tourists go? And I would tell them about, oh, I'm doing a literacy project and I'm doing book drives and bringing books into the schools. And then I'm listening and like yeah. trying to do what's needed. And they would say, can you come to my school? And I'd say, oh, and I'm a storyteller. Like, great, come to my school. Great, I'll come to your school. So I, then I would stay with teachers in these different villages. Wow. And they started teaching me their local legends, Tata Duende, protector of the rainforest, and um, Ishtabai, who's this shape-shifting woman who mm. turns into a monster. And, and she does that to protect women, which I thought was like, whoa, that's powerful. Yeah. Um, and El Jadejo, which is just shape-shifting dog, and same thing, he's protecting people. Those became the legends that we'd focus on while I while teaching the creative writing. So it was their stories that were not only being utilized to teach, because then the children could see themselves in the material. Mm-hmm. It was also respecting material that had been disrespected by a lot of people who look like me, who are white. Yeah. And as a white person, that's where I use my white privilege, mm-hmm. you know, and there was a lot of work of, I don't have any more knowledge than you do. I have maybe some different skill sets. You have knowledge that's really valuable and important. And let's bridge those knowledges together and let's create this stuff together. Um, and the book, A Bridge of Stories, talks about that process. Mm-hmm. And the lesson plan is within that book. I share that because that lesson plan could be utilized anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, think about the different cultures in your own communities and how creative writing, and it was first person narrative yeah. where the kids would choose one of these legendary characters. Yeah. And then it would be what would happen moment by moment if they met that character face to face. Wow. It was, it was very descriptive writing and they were in the story. They were, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I thought you would with the work you're doing with creative writing and theater and, and working with, with kids too, Mm -hmm. as well as adults to see themselves in the story. And that was my first experience doing that kind of work internationally. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then a librarian in Accra, Ghana, somehow Googled literacy and storytelling and my itty bitty little website popped up. Mm. And then I got a call on Skype in 2000, 
11 mm-hmm. from a librarian in Accra, Ghana. I thought it was a fake call at first. And then they said, no, no, look, look. And they they said, would you video call? And there behind them is the Accra library sign and their, and their name, like on a little plaque on the wall. And they're like, look, it's really me. <laughs> so it took, it took two years. It took two years to get there, but I went to Accra, Ghana and I, and the idea was to train librarians and oh my gosh, no, they trained me. You know, I brought a few things to them and I learned a lot about how they were utilizing story in their context, in Mm -hmm. their communities, Um, watching them do literacy lessons with 50 kids from ages four up to 21, all in the same space together. Mm. Like that's an incredible thing to witness. Two young men, they were 18 and 19 years old and they were teaching 50 kids at the same time, but all the way up to people that were a little bit older than they were and how they would utilize, you know, they'd pair the older ones with the younger ones. And Mm. what was really cool is sometimes it was the younger ones that were teaching the older ones it was beautiful it was just beautiful so So, I learned a lot there so between like going to Belize working with the creative writing with with the youth there um working with librarians in a different context in a different place do these kind of capture uh what you were doing what you've done internationally abroad over the years I'm sure they don't I'm sure there's a a little bit a little bit. I mean, I can, I can say, so the, that, that work ended up laying a foundation for another aspect of the work that grew out of it, which was, I stayed in Ghana after the library training work was over. And I interviewed everyday people about what they wanted people outside of Ghana to know about their country, Mm. because they were so tired of, you know, Africa being talked about as if it's one country, right, right. It's five countries, um, and, and and there's diversity within each country too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so those interviews became a book. I partnered with another organization called Artfully Aware, mm-hmm. and they they I don't think they exist anymore. Um, and it was Hillary Wallace who is she's a graphic designer. Mm-hmm. So I did all the interviews of the people and captured interviews and then she graphically designed and it's a paperback book called Ghana is mm-hmm. and the idea is Ghana is all these different things so talk yeah. about a multiple like a multitude of stories right multi-layered right and in Kenya in Kenya it was a storytelling festival that took me there mm-hmm. and I did something similar it was interviewing Kenyans who had created um, organizations to address issues in their own communities. Okay. And again, it was to highlight the locals who were addressing things rather than the white savior complex, you know, the whites yeah. are going to come in and they're going to make everything better. Yeah. These were Kenyans who were doing phenomenal, uh, like a cooperative farm for, for women who'd been abused. That was mm. one of the projects called Sepaset. Um, another one, Sarkozy, and they go into, it's a clowning troupe and an acrobatic troupe that go into <laughs> hospitals, mm-hmm. children's hospitals, and provide entertainment for the children mm-hmm. um, to give them an outlet. Many of these kids are, are, are terminal in these hospitals. So that, yeah. And then that evolved into really wanting to do more with breaking these stereotypes 
And that, that led to the World Bank work. I, had hor- I heard horror stories about the World Bank. So what is the specific work you do at the World Bank? So on paper, I teach presentation skills. What I'm actually doing is teaching staff how to tell a very different story than what they're telling. Mm. They often tell really technical, complicated, data-riven, data-filled uh, presentations that don't have a story to them. Yeah. And my goal is to assist them to have more humanity yes. in their presentation, mm-hmm. to honor the people they're in service to, and to tell the human story behind the numbers, because wow. behind every number is a human. Yeah. And that, that work came out of those independent projects I had done in Belize and Haiti, I didn't talk about Haiti in, in Kenya and Guatemala and Ghana, I heard over and over how the world bank, while it did lots of helpful work with providing funds also did a lot of damage and not including local people in the projects Mm. that they were doing and not listening to the knowledges and wisdom of the local people. And that's part of what I bring back to the bank is letting them know transparently the kinds of things I heard about them. And that's why I want to assist them to tell a different story and to also listen more. So I'll ask things like, do you have anybody local on this project? If you don't, you might want to consider it, you know, so it's not only presentation skills, it's really about, are they fully honoring the populations they're in service to? Are they also listening? Yeah. Not only coming in and saying we're an expert. That's something I love about narratives so, so much is that while we are practitioners, we are not experts Mm -hmm. and that the people who consult with us, and I love that too, not calling someone a client. I love the idea of consulting together on this journey of a preferred story and that the person consulting is an expert in their lived experience. And we are our hope skilled, hopefully mm-hmm. compassionate, curious question askers that might be able to assist in unpacking some things and we're exploring things, but we're doing it alongside each other. I, I love that about narrative so much. And that changes because that when that change happens, you know, because what you're dealing with isn't going to be a short term fix. It's a long term exactly. systemic Uh, changes that have to come from the inside and are going to affect the way they move in the world. And so that's beautiful that they trust you and that they are bringing you into these, this work that they do. Whether you think, oh, I'm too young to do this, or you think you're too old to do this, please allow that story to just drift away and ask yourself, what's influencing that story? And what are some other stories that are out there where age actually doesn't need to be a barrier? And the reason I share that is when I was 41, I moved to New York City because it's a place I'd wanted to live. And that opportunity came about from a footnote in a book called vagabonding and Mm. the footnote was about couch surfing Mm. 
an organization, not just couch surfing. Many people do that informally. Hey, that's awesome. But this was an organization that was started that matched hosts with travelers. Mm -hmm. And for New York City, I'd already liked going there because of theater, but couch surfing, joining that website at that time, and then asking hosts if they'd like to host me. Hey, I'm a storyteller. And these are the kinds of things I do. And people Mm -hmm. like a storyteller, that sounds interesting. Hey, and for staying at your apartment, I'll share stories with you. And if there's a story you want to learn how to tell, maybe I'll help you. And that couch surfing, the reason I'm sharing it is it opened up a whole different way of living. And I moved to New York City for $500 a month in 2008, which is unheard of. That was unheard of. Yeah. And not my own apartment. I had three roommates and it, I never growing up where I grew up. I never imagined at 41 that I'd have three roommates and what an awesome experience that was. Mm. The reason I'm sharing these details is for us to all expand our lenses on different ways of living that might open up more opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that living in New York city, I hosted in that living situation, we hosted couch surfers from all over the world. And that sometimes became the bridge. Kristen, I love visiting with you in, in New York. Can you come to my country? Wow. So in 2011, I pieced together a European tour for two and a half months across Europe. I did seven performances Mm-hmm. including in a school in Paris that someone I met randomly in Guatemala who asked to sit with me at dinner. The moral of the story is say yes. If someone says, hey, may yeah. I sit and have dinner with you? Say yes. What have you got to lose? And Diego happened to live in Paris at the time and said, I'd love for you to come visit me in Paris. And I was like, I've never been to Paris. Hey, I can set up an audition at a school for you. Great. And then the school said yes. And for six years, they hired me paid my transatlantic flight and 800 euros, which is like a thousand dollars for two days of work. Mm. And then I would continue traveling to different countries across Europe and performing. So, the, so, so the, I, I share, that's how all this stuff happened is by following a footnote in a book. You know? So, <laughs> but not saying, saying no. so the moral of the story is say yes. Yeah. Say yes. And, and, and look beyond, you know, age 41, my friends in Pennsylvania were like, are you crazy? You're moving to New York city by yourself and you're couch surfing on people's like, you don't know these people. And, Mm -hmm. and I said, but oh my gosh, the life I'm having, I'm having, I get to go out dancing, which is another passion. I get to meet people from all these different cultures. And now I'm traveling to these different countries. It's not only about saying yes. I think that's important too. It's about expanding your your vision, expanding mm. your field of vision as to what is possible and what is okay. Yeah. And I mean that in a way of not harming people either. I mean, none of this harmed anyone mm-hmm. by saying okay to these things. And I didn't harm myself by saying okay. Mm. It opened up a whole new world. Well, it opened up a world where you could live your dreams, where you could yes. be a professional storyteller. Yes. And whatever that was going to take to do that, you were willing to do. And transparently, something else important for me to transparently share is I was also living on about 18 to $20,000 a year as Mm. a professional storyteller from 2005 to 2015. Mm. I lived very, very leanly. I also had sold my house and most of Mm. my possessions to do that Belize volunteer project. And, and I was okay 
doing that. And that's a whole other conversation that we could have is like how, what did that process look like of letting go, you know, of, but it was the most liberating thing. It was what everybody says. That's why like, I, you know, sometimes you get a feeling in life that something's going to happen to you. And like, that's one of the things that I think about a lot is like, am I going to get to a point in my life where I'm going to let go of most of the stuff, you know? Um, yeah. And so yeah, I feel you know, like, I feel yeah. like, I feel like, uh, God's like preparing my heart to do that one day. So yeah. where does steer your story? How does that fit into all this? Does yeah. it come out of it? Does it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you could tell your listeners a little bit about what steer your story is as well. Yeah. Yes. It's the yes. And so steer your story. And when I say that I, you know, I used to I called it steer your story. And then for a while I called it steer your inner story. Mm. And then narrative practices reminded me that it's the inner and external story. Yes, all at yes. the same time. Yep. It's all those layers together. So that, that came out of some lived experience too. In 2018, I attended as a participant, a retreat for female identified survivors of childhood sexual abuse and assault. And at that retreat, I met 20 other women. And as I was hearing, we didn't talk about the the trauma stories. It was really about about who are we now and who do we want to be. And it was a lot of um, recovery work, too, on that idea of being forever damaged, a story that often was put on us. Your experience, honoring the experience that you lived through. And saying, you're so much more than that. And as I was listening to the other women, what I noticed were these common threads that seemed to run through of never good enough, overachieving, and mm. almost every woman in the room. Yeah. And it was really interesting because I thought I had felt very alone in that part of my story for a long time. So on returning, on returning back home after that retreat. Well, that's also where I got to experience Kintsugi, the Japanese art of mending broken pottery for the first time. Yes. Um, ah. No therapeutic questions were asked at all. We were simply given a bowl. We were instructed to break it and mend it with glue and gold. Mm. And it was a profound experience. So I returned home from that experience. And I had already had a program called We Become the Stories We Tell. Mm. And that had evolved out of working for the World Bank, living in Washington, D.C., And witnessing all these social justice groups wanting to do really important, needed work. Mm -hmm. But I was watching as the social justice folks were doing to others exactly what they did not want done to them. Mm -hmm. When I say that, being stereotyped stereotyped or being put, being pigeonholed as being misconstrued, being seen only for one aspect of who they were. Wow. And, and, but they, they were doing the same thing to other people as if all folks who voted a certain way were somehow terrible people. Mm -hmm. No, these are people who are nuanced and have so many layers to who they are. Please don't make a stereotype. You don't want that done to you. So hear your story grew out of this. We become the stories we tell. We become the stories we tell was all about being mindful. What story are you telling? Are you perpetuating a stereotype? You don't want to be stereotyped, but are you doing that very same thing and being mindful? Steer your story was about 
what are the layers that influence how we see ourselves, Mm -hmm. others and the world around us? Yeah. And it was a series of prompting questions, narrative before I knew what narrative therapy was about, you know, where did the story come from and, and what influences this story and fam talking about family of origin and the messages we hear growing up and how that really affects how we see ourselves Mm. and then gender norms and then what society tells us. So it was about exploring those and deconstructing those. And now it's grown it's evolved with narrative practices that really look at even more layers. And that means that we can deconstruct those and what's the preferred story, what's the hope for story. So in Steer Your Story, it's one-on-one work and group work. And I did have an online course, but I really need to revamp it and add more (laughs) narrative to it. Sure. Um, I did a tour in 2019 across the U.S. and Canada, mm-hmm. working with survivors of abuse, of trafficking, of incarceration, of war. Um, I worked with several groups of veterans in exploring what was that single story, you know, ideas of the single stories that perhaps were placed on them. And then as we start looking at these layers, what other parts of their story mm. Um, so things like more than one descriptor yeah, and things like there were prompts, like if your best friend were to describe you to me, mm-hmm. how might they describe you, yeah. which was often completely different than a person described themselves. Right. And it, it was a beautiful, um, really a beautiful experience to witness as some of the layers started getting peeled back. It was like a gateway mm-hmm. to their preferred story. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful that I got to do that tour. Well, it sounds like, you know, you, you, you get to that point with steer your story, you do that tour, you know, COVID happens and it rocks everyone's world, but then it, you got this time where you slow down a little bit, but in the slowing down, you were able to dive deeper into narrative practices and that's how you got in the master's program. And that's how we ultimately met. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Amen for um, narrative practices found me actually while I was on tour. Wow. And in in Southern, in Southern Alberta, Mm -hmm. went to a healing arts festival. I was talking to a friend about steer your story. I had my little business cards. They have a little steering wheel on them and steer your story. And we were joking. They're, they're like um, thicker cardboards. We were joking. They're like mini Frisbees. We were tossing it back and forth. Anyway, a woman came up and, and she was, she said, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I heard a bit about what you're talking about. It sounds like narrative therapy. And I said, what's that? And oh, then she then, started yep. telling me about narrative therapy and she was doing the master's at University of Melbourne. Oh, look at that. Told me, wow. I know. So again, listeners, if there's anything else you take away from today, talk to strangers, you know, <laughs> Uh, honest to Pete. And I, and I say that because I can't tell you how many conversations I've had on airplanes and in buses on, on just standing on the street corner at the grocery store. And then all of a sudden the moment happens and then, you know, saying yes to things, saying yes to uh, potential opportunities or getting to know somebody some more. Oh my gosh. You just don't know what doors. I know I'm very inspired by that with everything you're saying here. So as we're starting to get ready to close, Kristen, we at All Things Narrative, we're trying to uh, discover what it means to live a meaningful story. With the work that you're doing now with Kintsugi, 
Um, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about what that work is. And I know this was your innovation project uh, in the masters, but this is work you're, you're diving deeper into and pushing forward to do more as well. But what I'm curious about is not just what Kintsugi is, but how does Kintsugi help a person uh, to live a more meaningful story? Oh, thank you for that question. So in a nutshell, I will say what it is because some listeners might not be familiar with it. Yep. So Kintsugi is ancient Japanese art of mending broken pottery with traditionally lacquer and gold. Now we'll use often glue mm-hmm. and some precious metal or even like a powdered embossing powder that's in a precious metal color. And the philosophy around Kintsugi and the, the meaning even in the ancient Japanese tradition is to honor the cracks and to highlight them rather than hide them. Mm. It's a beautiful and powerful metaphor in lived experience of not hiding the cracks or the scars or the flaws or the, if you want to call it damage, rather honoring it, honoring it and highlighting it with the idea that the life of the vessel is honored before the breakage, during the repair, and then after the repair. Wow. And it's actually considered stronger. The mm-hmm. vessel's considered stronger after the repair. So in the work, uh, and it's worked across many different types of challenges and problems, which has been beautiful to witness, a particular population that I really um, feel strongly pulled towards, I think because of my own lived experience, is survivors of abuse, of Mm -hmm. childhood sexual assault, of interpersonal violence, Mm -hmm. and then survivors as well of trafficking, incarceration, war. And the process of Kintsugi, we explore the metaphors of broken and of the glue that helps us mend, what the gold might illuminate, what what we see in the pieces. And we do the physical practice of breaking a piece of pottery and exploring the pieces, what are we seeing in the pieces and then mending them. The meaning making that can come out of this is not not only what are people seeing in the pieces and what's the metaphorical glue, also very real lived, and not to say those metaphors aren't real for people, they are. What I mean is is skills that a person uses, what are the skills they're using to glue this piece back together? What are the skills they're using to choose what pieces to start with? And how might that apply to their daily life? Witnessing people, you know, have these moments of, oh, I'm using patience and discernment. And then having a conversation, oh, do you use patience and discernment in other areas of your life? Mm-hmm, oh mm-hmm. my gosh, yeah. I use it in the foster care work I do, in, in the social work I do. Or yeah, I use it as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So being able to um, thicken a narrative, we would say thicken these threads yeah. of the skills the person has and their abilities that they have that maybe they hadn't fully realized before. Maybe those were were overshadowed by a problem-saturated story or this view of them as, you know, they've carried a view. So many of the people I work with have carried a view of forever damaged or damaged beyond repair. Mm. And when there's this moment of exploring broken and whose story is that, oh, maybe that's not my story. Yeah. So the work is expanding. Um, I've, I've worked with female survivors of childhood sexual assault. I've worked with survivors of, of violence, 
uh, I've worked with um, people with relationship with addiction and the mm-hmm. story that that goes along with with an addiction story. I've worked with people having challenges in their relationship. It's been beautiful to do kintsugi with couples, wow. couples who may be stuck in a problem story, and then they do kintsugi together. And what's their hope for story in their relationship? And as they're helping each other put those pieces together, there's so much that comes out of that experience. Um, and working with groups yeah. and being able to do the work together. So, so the expansion of it, I'm hoping to be able to do another face-to-face tour. Um, that'll mm-hmm. happen eventually. I don't know the time frame, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm working on doing three-day retreats where okay. we do a deep dive into the that. metaphors and creative writing and doing the physical process. Those will be in person, and I'm I'm hoping the first one will be in June, and then in the fall and ongoing. Uh, and I'm writing a book about the process too, wow. a workbook to go along the process. So thanks for asking about that. And it's such a passion of mine. And it's glorious to witness people have a preferred story and it's through this art process. And then they've got the tangible bowl or vessel to, they can keep that, you know, keep that up nearby and keep the story going. So there's this, this discourse, you know, of broken and helping people to recognize those things in our lives that are, are, problems but not allowing them to define us because we can be whole again yes and whole and whole in a preferred way in a preferred way if you want to learn more about kintsugi and the work kristen is doing you can go to either steeryourstory.com or kristenpedamonte.com and kristen as we're wrapping up um it might be uh awesome for you to if you haven't heard about it is that we're actually doing a, a collective document here on this podcast so we are right now, we've been doing this since uh, beginning of April, and we're taking submissions right now for people to send in recordings of themselves talking about what sustains you through hard times, what keeps you going. So it could be values, it could be beliefs, it could be people, specific stories, um, it could be all kinds of things. I'd like to encourage you all, if you want to be a part of uh, sharing that, Um, This podcast is heard around the world, so being able to share a little piece of your story um, with somebody, uh, feel free to send that submission to Derek H at allthingsnarrative.com. That's D-E-R-R-I-C-K-H for Hatch at allthingsnarrative.com. Or if you just look in the show notes, I'll have that email in there as well. And so this is just uh, an exciting opportunity to get to be a storyteller yourself. So Kristen, thank you so much for being on the podcast, for being in all things narrative. You're welcome on any time. And any last thoughts before we go? Just thank you so much. And for the listeners, again, to know that whatever age you are and wherever you are on the journey, to allow that to be okay and to continue having hope and continue pursuing pursuing what it is you want your life to look like yeah and derek thank you so much what a pleasure being interviewed by you thank you so much for the opportunity and thank you Kristen. and thank you all out there for listening and checking this out we'll be back next week for an episode on identity and the stories that shape our identities so until then this is your friendly narrative practitioner derek signing off thank you so much 
and take care.